much for tuning in. I'm Lauren Chen, and with me I have a very special in-studio guest, Imam Tawhidi. Thank you. Hello, Lauren. Thank you very much for having me. For sure. Now, this is actually not the first time we've spoken. I've interviewed you before, but never before in person. Um, so for anyone who's not yet familiar with you, what would you say, I guess, your goals are? Who are you and what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, my name is Imam Tawhidi. My full name is Imam Muhammad Tawhidi. And I am a uh, Iranian-born Australian Muslim Imam. I spend my days having meetings with diplomats and social leaders as well as faith leaders, hoping to ideologically tackle the Islamic extremists and the fundamentalists that have infested Islam. And I've just released my book, which basically outlines my highlights of my journey as well as my ideology and my agenda and what I hope to achieve uh, in this uh, short period of, uh, of life that we have. Other than that, I'm a third generation Imam. I've been trained in Iran and I returned to Australia in 2015 and I've been very busy ever since. Mm -hmm. So your book, uh, The Tragedy of Islam, on sale now, if anyone hasn't checked it out yet, um, you're very critical of a lot of aspects of Islam in that and I think a lot of people who are familiar with your platform know that you, you don't let any radicals off the hook at all. Um, I think when I let people know that I was going to be speaking with you, a lot of people were curious as to what what do you find redeeming about Islam? What for you and the Islamic doctrine do you think is worth being uh, an adherent an adherent for? Because I think a lot of people, when they hear all of your criticisms, they may ask, if you see so much that is wrong with Islam, why stick around? Well, to answer your question, I'll need to un uh, give you three separate answers from three separate perspectives. The first question is, uh, basically, why do I stick around with Islam? And the answer to that is that I don't believe that religion can be left or that you can distance yourself away from a religion. I don't believe in such a thing. I believe that religion is part of one's heritage. And, you know, we can say openly that Islam is facing a serious challenge from within its own uh, institutions within its own leadership within its own communities and it can be very easy uh, to be an ex-muslim by just leaving the boat when it's sinking but it's actually uh, more difficult to remain uh, in the religion and work very hard to amend certain issues because obviously there are many victims left behind you can't just leave and allow the uh, clerics and the clerical institutions to then see that all the outspoken uh, reformists and all the outspoken moderates have left the religion. Therefore, they can no longer speak about it. And these victims will just fall into the, into the traps of the clerics, uh, which is why I, I refuse to, uh, to you know, go down that path of being an ex-Muslim. That's number one. Secondly, I'm a religious person. I'm not just a Muslim by name. I'm a practicing Muslim imam. I'm, I'm actually very religious and many people don't really think that of me because of how much I criticize certain aspects and elements of the religion. What I, critis what I criticize is the man-made aspects of it. And uh, you asked what I find so admiring in, in, in Islam. Islam is a combination of the majority of Abrahamic religions. Uh, one of the very uh, important aspects of the Quran is that it hasn't really brought anything new. It's it's basically a repetition of what had already been uh, stated in the Torah and in the, the Bible, as well as other books such as the Suhaf of, of Abraham. And I find that to be uh, uh, very challenging when someone tells me that 
the Quran in itself needs to be wiped out. I mean, how, how are we going to wipe out the story of Jesus Christ, the miracles of Moses? There are many things in the book, if not taken literally, uh, can actually uh, be compared to books such as the Old Testament and so on and so forth. And then we can then uh, take a look at enlightenment and reformation and so on. Not that I believe in, in reformation in Islam as a religion, but I do believe that uh, on a social level, we can have reformed Muslim communities, such as myself, Majid Nawaz, Rahim Raza, and the communities we work with. Another uh, part of, of this answer would be the amazing figures in the history of Islam, and they're only a handful. One of them would be a figure such as Imam Hussein, who I mention in, uh, in my book, a figure such as Lady Fatima, who was, who was killed uh, for standing against the caliphates. Hussein was massacred in Iraq. Uh, the answer is very, very uh, long, but there are great figures in Islam that did oppose the tyrants and the caliphs. And I admire those figures. They, it is them and their story that inspire me uh, to remain within the religion and fight for, uh, you know, fight the good fight. And I think that is, even as a Christian, something that I think is important to separate doctrine from the community of practitioners who adhere to that doctrine, right? Um, so would you, you do say that you believe in the Quran as, let's say, the word of God? Correct. Now, I believe, by the way, I believe in all books to be the word of God. So the Bible, the Torah, they're all the word of God. Mm -hmm. So I think when, when people hear that and then they see that, I mean, you know, you obviously are not preaching a, a message of hate, I don't think by any means. Um, would you say that there are certain passages in the Quran that conflict with a message of peace, either uh, be it toward non-believers, toward apostates, or even women or homosexuals? Correct. Uh, the, uh, look, let me uh, be a bit controversial, and I can't give an interview without ending up and, you know, sounding controversial. Not everything that comes from God has to be peaceful. Mm -hmm. Who said God is peace? I don't understand that. This isn't a law in theology that God and everything comes from God is peaceful. I mean, even if you weren't a Muslim, if someone was a Christian or a Jew, they, they would still believe in hellfire and, and, uh, and paradise. So who said throwing disbelievers or people who, who sin in hellfire, who said that was an act of peace? Do you see what I mean? So the definition of peace, according to God, is basically what humans do to satisfy that God. In all religions, in, all, in every theology and in every doctrine that you study, the definition of peace isn't the definition that society has. Or oh, the imam of peace, you're hugging everyone. Yes, this is peace on a social level. But peace in theology, peace in doctrine can only be achieved if you do what God says. And this is basically uh, the law in every religion. You don't do what God says, you can never be saved. And that means you go down a very dark path. Um, so in the Quran, are there scriptures that go against peace? Yes, from the wife beating to fighting the, the disbelievers. But then it's the interpretation that makes that uh, applicable in society. And it's the interpretation that stops that and bans it from being applied into society. Mm -hmm. So I guess when, you know, if there's a Muslim out there, uh, perhaps even a an Imam, if he goes to the Quran and sees, uh, you know, specifically mentioned a passage about wife beating, what do you think would be 
I, I guess, a peaceful interpretation of that that is in line with our current laws regarding spousal abuse? Uh, there is no peaceful interpretation of that because the verse is very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And anyone that tries to give you a peaceful interpretation of that is playing uh, mind gymnastics and is fooling uh, the public and is also insulting their intelligence. But this is the real interpretation that I believe in. Uh, when Islam emerged in Arabia, they were already burying their newborn female girls alive. And by doing that, they, they felt that if there was a raid or a war or battle, the woman would no longer be taken hostages and therefore the man would not feel ashamed by his pride and his honor uh, being held hostage by the enemy. So what they would do is that they would bury the newborn girl alive. And this was a tradition that took place uh, in Arabia, uh, pre-Islamic era for, for hundreds of years. It's not something new. It wasn't a new social problem. So Islam wanted to end this practice. And in order to guarantee their life, they had to provide another means of satisfying the man. Let's not forget, Islam today and the same Islam that arrived in Mecca and Medina has always been a religion of men. Whoever wants to give you this impression that there is room for females in Islam in a leadership perspective is very wrong. Islam has always been a religion of men. Therefore, in order to provide some sense of, uh, of authority to the man above the, the female, and to, because you have women being born in every, every day, every area. So to save their lives, a very swift solution was then provided, uh, speaking to the Arabs of that lifestyle and that mentality, and that is keep them alive, and you have full authority above them, full authority over them, and if they bother you, then beat them. And this made the Arabs of that time very satisfied, very happy. Okay, I can keep her, and... Uh, and it's no longer a shame, and if she bothers me, I can beat her. And that's the mentality of the time. Now this doesn't apply because nobody is burying women alive, and there is no real need to try and, and justify uh, the beating of the wife by saying, well, if you don't beat her, he would have buried her alive. I think, uh, let me clarify, say this one point, because many people might even find this clarification a bit disturbing. The solutions for the majority of Islam's problems are themselves problematic. So this is what I mean when I say Islam in itself is in a big mess. That the solution to our problems are, are problems. So they're less problems than the actual problems we're trying to solve. And this just makes it more difficult. Therefore, the interpretation I would put down is for today that this verse doesn't apply because women don't need such protection. They're independent, they rule governments, they rule armies. We don't need such, mm -hmm. such so a verse. So I guess you would argue for a more contextual approach. Yes. Now, you, you, meant, you mentioned that Islam is, I guess, patriarchal. That, that word's been thrown around a lot, but, I mean, literally patriarchal. Um, there are movements within Islam, not, not huge ones, but I know when I was just in Los Angeles, I actually met a female who identifies as an imam. What would be your views on that? Female imams don't have a role in the religion. Mm -hmm. A female can be a Muslim scholar, she can be a Muslim uh, uh, leader in women's affairs, but this is a religion of men. 
I'm not saying this because I want it to be a re to remain a religion of men. I'm telling you a fact. Islam is a religion of men. And it has always been a religion of men and it will remain a religion of men. Because the mentality that forms the laws, that forms the jurisprudential uh, uh, teachings, uh, that forms the whole system of Sharia law, is based on a masculine understanding. A female wanting to be uh, an imama, uh, these things only work in, in non-Muslim countries where she can call 911, zero, and get the police for her protection. This doesn't work and there is no benefit in having a female uh, uh, imam because this will still be considered a man-made concept, a human-made concept, a female-made concept. And if it's not a divine concept that women can be uh, imams, then the Muslim world will never follow her. Now, I am one uh, person who demanded that the Australian National Imams Council that appoints the Grand Mufti of Australia appoint a female Mufti. I wanted that. I said we should have a female Mufti. Uh, acknowledging the fact that it will never work. But I wanted to at least have a start. But if women are going to start, then it's going to be a bit difficult if they're independent. They need to be part of a huge council that approves of them. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I said the Imam's Council should appoint a female mufti. Right, and I guess with that, I, I'm going to try to, I would like to try to unpack it a little bit because I think when we're talking about religion, um, you know, there are things that I believe about my church and it's not, it's not so much that I, you know, I'm focusing on, I guess, the man-made aspects and the community aspects, but which, yes, are important, but I think ultimately it should be about what God desires and what He wants. So when, when you say that there's no room for a female imam in Islam, do you think it's because, like you mentioned, it's just been designed by men and culturally, or do you think that's a specific divine commandment from God that in His religion to worship Him, it should be by a man, uh, if that makes sense, the distinction. It does make sense. God does not differentiate between genders whatsoever and in the history of Islam women have played a massive role in the spread of the religion uh, such as Zainab uh, the daughter of Ali such as Fatima the daughter of Muhammad and even uh, you know we, we have many terrorists that were females but we can't deny the fact that they played a huge role in the spread of the religion such as Aisha uh, who Muhammad uh, married uh, many believe she was nine and I don't believe so uh, so she then evolved into being a terrorist and she led armies. So women have always had, uh, uh, you know, leadership roles in Islam. And because of that, we cannot wipe out the concept of female leadership in Islam. I think it's a more social issue rather than a divine teaching. Mm -hmm. All right, and I, I'm glad you mentioned Muhammad because I think I, a lot of people would like to know a little bit more about him. Now, um, I think when Christians hear about Islam, there is the tendency to want to equate Muhammad with Jesus, which is interesting and understandable, but it's also something that the doctrine of Islam itself never claims, right? Um, Muhammad is a prophet, but he's not the savior in the religion in the same way that Christ is. Um, doesn't the doctrine of Islam would not necessitate Muhammad being a perfect person. But still, there are a lot of a lot of people out there who might point to the fact that there are documentations that assert that he uh, took a child bride. Uh, you know, you mentioned Aisha. You, you say that you don't believe that. No, it's, it's also in my book, uh, a clear analysis and an examination and a study where I prove with sources, authentic uh, sources, which are also available, that she was not nine she was uh, 19 to 21 and i believe that they uh, the clerics 
in, uh, in the early years of Islam pushed her age all the way back to hide a greater secret. And that is the fact that she was not a virgin. And she was not a virgin and she was also a very obscene and promiscuous woman who had gone around with half of uh, the uh, elite of Arabia. Now this might uh, be very uh, offensive to some Muslims, but this is the truth. Uh, but the sad thing is that according to Islam, Muhammad marrying a virgin is more important than anything else. So, you know, they, they wiped out a huge chapter of her life just to present her as six and as nine. You may ask, well, what about Khadija, Muhammad's other wife, who was not a virgin? Uh, the answer is that Aisha played a huge political role. Aisha is the daughter of Abu Bakr. He's the caliph and the father-in-law of Muhammad. He's the first caliph and Muhammad is the prophet. So Aisha was basically the link between her husband, the prophet, and her dad, the next caliph. And she had a political role. Therefore, it's very important to justify her actions in the religion by saying that she was a virgin and, and God sent Gabriel with her picture and he showed Muhammad and Muhammad fell in love with the picture and then they got married and Muhammad died between her legs and you know nonsense like that why because to them Aisha is important to me Aisha is a historic figure yes she's the wife of my prophet so what she was an evil woman so I don't believe she was uh, nine to begin with other than that Muhammad and his actions, let's not forget, uh, and also let's you know remind the viewers that Islam isn't one school of thought. Mm -hmm. Islam is, is formed of two major denominations. From these denominations, over 70 schools of thought. And you've spoken about this before. These schools of thought view Muhammad differently. Not all of us see Muhammad uh, the same way. For example, some will believe he is not infallible. He can make error. Some will believe it's impossible that Muhammad makes error. Uh, if you read the most sacred book after the Quran, the Bukhari, read about Muhammad in the Bukhari. The Muhammad portrayed in the Bukhari is a terrorist maniac. If you read the most sacred book after the Quran. But the Bukhari isn't accepted by all Muslims. Only a number of Muslims. Therefore, when I speak about Muhammad, I speak about when I criticize a version of Muhammad, I'm basically criticizing uh, the Muhammad that uh, is basically someone who kills and butchers and rapes and, and marries, uh, you know, is a pedophile. But if I have evidence that she wasn't six or nine, uh, therefore this shows that there's another Muhammad. There's another study, another perception, another understanding of Muhammad, which the minority believe in. Now, even if I were to say that uh, Muhammad didn't marry uh, a nine-year-old, even if I were to say that, this makes no difference because my opinion will always be unpopular and the majority of the Muslims do believe in a Muhammad who is a violent man. So what I say isn't trying to wash or downplay anything. No, no, no. Uh, if you were to sit with any fundamentalist Muslim, they will tell you, no, 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 Muhammad married a nine-year-old and he killed 800 Jews and uh, he chopped and butchered. Yeah, no. and, and they would try to justify it. But I'm not justifying anything. I'm just saying there are many versions of Prophet Muhammad according to uh, different schools of thought within Islam. And uh, yes, the majority of my co-religionists do believe in, in a violent Muhammad. So in your interpretation of Muhammad, he is a peaceful man. He's not a, a rapist, warmonger, pedophile. Then. 
I say that according to the majority of interpretations and the majority of studies into the life of Muhammad, uh, the majority portray him as an evil man and prove that he is an evil man. And there are beliefs held by the minority that prove that Muhammad was not an evil man and that these reports can be uh, refuted or, you know, rejected. Uh, and I take a look at religion from both sides because I'm a reformist. I don't take sides. I take a look at what this group has to say and what this group has to say. And I basically come up with a conclusion that tells me this might be suitable for the 21st century and this is the more peaceful version that should be uh, preached. Now, from my experience, Christians and Jews really don't care if Muslims believe in Muhammad or believe in a piece of wood. They just don't want people idolizing a terrorist. Therefore, I try to present a version of Muhammad that resonates and sits with uh, the minority of Muslims that I work with. But to answer your question, uh, would I find it to be a problem if the violent version of Muhammad ended out to be the more accurate according to the Quran? Yes, I would have a big problem with that. I would, and it might even spark a serious reaction from me. So until now, I'm just in... in uh, and research mode, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. And a lot of, uh, I guess, the tales about Muhammad, even Aisha, they, you know, it's interesting in, in Islam, it's, it's very different than something like Judaism or Christianity. You know, Christianity has the Bible, which of course some books have gone in and out of it, right? Uh, but in Islam, there's the Quran and there's also the Hadith. And the Hadith are, you know, instead of being the works of Muhammad, rather just stories of his life. And that's where um, I think a lot of the information about him, for example, uh, being a pedophile might come from. What do you think the role of the Hadith are in the religion? Do you, do you see them as equally valuable as the Quran? Are those also the word of God? Should that be something that Muslims take into account when they're deciding how to practice their faith? The Hadith is not the word of God, but it is given more priority than the word of God. So if a Muslim wants to take a look at uh, what the rulings are today regarding certain matters, such as uh, dealing with a deceased person, the preparing for the funeral, getting married, uh, paying finances, traveling, all these issues, their teachings are taught by the hadiths, not by the Quran. So the Quran is not more sacred, but it's given more importance because it has something to do with the daily practices of the individual Muslim. Do I abide by the hadith? No. I think the hadith are a waste of time because they were written by men. And men who their stories would make you laugh. So take a look at Bukhari, for example, who existed around 200 years after Prophet Muhammad. He was blind and hardly spoke Arabic. Um, you know, from Bukhara in Persia never seen Muhammad, never even seen those who saw Muhammad, uh, lived very distance away, writes a book. The book becomes the most sacred uh, book after the Quran, which was Muhammad's book. I mean, if you read Bukhari, the, this man has detailed the sexual activities of Muhammad's life as though he lived with him in his own house. I mean, you know, to me, 
looking at it from an academic perspective, from a historical perspective, it's not worthy uh, of uh, of any value for me to really consider this. The guy never saw Muhammad in 200 years, and he's detailing things that happened inside Muhammad's bedroom. I mean, this does raise so many question marks for me. Therefore, I reject the Bukhari, and I reject many of these hadith. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when people who aren't Muslim who you're talking, um, anyone who might be on the fence about whether they, you know, for example, want to be welcoming Muslims in their country might be comforted. And I know a lot of people who have heard our interviews together have commented, wow, you know, great, uh, I wish that your message would get more popular across the Muslim world. But there are also people who I think are a little bit more cynical who bring up the issue of taqiyya. Um Now, for anyone who might not be familiar with that, would you mind giving us, I guess, an explanation yes, of yes. What, what that is? Uh, Taqiyah is present in the uh, Sunni school of thought and the Shi'i school of thought, basically in all Islamic denominations and schools of thought. But it is more practiced in the Shia school of thought than the Sunni school of thought. It's more popular in the Shia school of thought, which I uh, belong to. Uh, and uh, what Taqiyah is, it's basically the permissibility to deceive uh, someone, and it could be anyone, in order to save your life or in order to get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, what the viewers or what the people commenting uh, were referring to uh, was not taqiyya, uh, because taqiyya is basically to save one's life. So if uh, I was sitting here and you came and you were looking for someone and I knew that they were going to be harmed, then you, you ask me, did you see so-and-so? And I say, no. That is a lie because they were just here, but I tried to save their life. That's taqiyya. And it's taken from the word yattaqi. And, uh, you know, it can be applied many times. What the people commenting on our social media are referring to is tawriya. Tawriya is another form of deception. And that is, for example, if you were to ask me, uh, for example, if I were to put my... Uh, ring in in my pocket for example and you were to ask me hey imam would you have another ring for me to have and i would say no really i don't have another one on my other hand right but it's in my pocket for example Uh, or if someone was to ask me for financial help and i say oh i have nothing in my pockets but it's in the bank that's tawriya it's a form of deception to get myself away from uh, the situation and uh, extremists use this a lot to further the cause of, of their Islamist agenda and to spread their fundamentalist teachings, you know, by playing so many victim cards. And Tawriya is part of their mission. Uh, why I don't engage in that? Or if I do? Uh, well, if I do, then the Muslims would know. If I was a, a Tawriya master uh, deceiving the Western world, the Muslims would know. And they would be cheering me for reaching this far and sitting in parliaments and meeting with diplomatic uh, uh, leaders and they would be thinking I'm a hero. But instead, if you search the news, I'm punched in the face, my home is attacked, my vehicles get destroyed, uh, the amount of death threats, the bounties, and uh, state intelligence spoke to me earlier this week and they said that my book might even attract the fatwa. I mean, what I've written in my book isn't something, isn't a work of taqiyya. I've basically let it all out there. And uh, as for Tawriya, I mean, another form of deception, I'm not speaking to Lauren and Lauren alone. When this goes out, you have 
people who are doctors in Islamic theology, uh, faith leaders, there are serious giants in the, in the academic field that know Islam. If I was to engage in this practice, and if I have been engaging in this practice for so long, I mean, these people would have known by now. Uh, but no, the answer I give is, when you see me doing what I do, if you believe it's good, then support me. If you believe, if the moment you see me flip against you, then flip against me. And uh, uh, I think that that's a fair way to put it. I don't engage in taqiyah or tawriya or muruna or kitman, all of these dis Islamic deception, uh, because I don't believe that they are needed. Mm -hmm. But would you, I guess regardless of whether they might be needed or not, do you think that these forms of deception, and perhaps maybe not uh, to save your life, but do you think deception would be hypothetically permissible by God if it were to further his religion? Yes, it would be according, because look, uh, God, when you take a look at Jesus Christ, when you take a look at the story of Moses, Abraham, um, Isaac, Daniel, all of the Abrahamic prophets and messengers, each one of them came across a situation where they had to do everything they can to get out of that situation. And uh, for example, in the issue of uh, Jesus Christ, for example, and this is the Muslim Jesus, I'm not, I'm not referring to the Christian Jesus, the Jesus presented to Muslims, in many cases, people asked him in markets, are you Jesus, the son of Mary? And he would say no, uh, in order to save his life. Because obviously there were no, there was no Google images. You couldn't tell who was who unless you asked about him, and he would be pointed in that direction. So he denied he was Jesus many times. And even Moses, when he was a child, and he was uh, taken care of by Asia, the wife of the uh, the Pharaoh, and uh, you know he refused numerous times, and his parents also refused uh, numerous times, and the carers refused to identify him as Moses, because then he would be killed. Uh, getting yourself out of trouble, I think, is a noble thing. I don't think it's a bad thing to get yourself out of trouble, but I think it's terrible to deceive people. And we live in a time where I don't need to deceive you to get my point across. I don't need to deceive anyone to gain a following. There's an audience for everything. Uh, and you can state your message and you'll have followers. So I condemn people who engage in taqiyah and tawriyah and all of these nonsenses. I think they're a waste of time and no longer needed. Mm -hmm. And I think at that we're going to pivot a little bit and talk more broadly about, I guess, instead of Islam as a concept toward Muslims as, as people. Um, now, Islamic immigration toward Western countries isn't new. It's been happening for quite a while. Um, but I think what's different now is that whereas it used to be um, from countries who were actually quite quite modernized, I think most of the groups were maybe from Lebanon, um, Egypt, which uh, used to be actually quite progressive uh, for the area, or even somewhere like Algeria, um, we're now seeing a lot of movement of groups from perhaps uh, yeah, Syria, uh, maybe more from Iraq. Do you think it's, I guess, reasonable for people uh, any politician, perhaps even voter, to worry that even though, you know, Imam Tawhidi, bless him, does not believe in these things, that there are other actors out there who, who might be engaging in deception in order to either gain a foothold oh. in the country or... Definitely, and we've caught them out. We've caught them out numerous times. And uh, in fact, there are actors that were on the scene before me. And when I appeared, they were threatened by my presence that I would see right through them and they began launching attacks at me. And these people are high-ranking people. They, they've even served in the American uh, army. So yes, 
I am worried about the wave of immigration hitting Australia, hitting Canada and America. But at the same time, I don't think all refugees are a problem. I don't think all of them are a problem. Some of them have really uh, proven to be good people, hardworking people. I mean, I'm a migrant as well. So I don't wish to say all of them. I don't like to generalize, but I do uh, like, because my main concern is national security. If, if someone can guarantee that this boat with this many people is going to come here and no terrorist attacks and no problems and they're going to be hardworking taxpayers, then yes, why not? I mean, I'm not racist, but if, you know, we're going to have them coming in and trying to change the culture that I've adapted to and I want my children to adapt to, then it's going to be a problem. And I really have to say that we have had some serious bad experiences with these terrorists and they are refugees and migrants so it's very uh, normal for us to say hold on maybe even pause it for a while and let's solve the problems we have at hand before we take another load of uh, uh, migrants regarding the actors yes there are many of them mm-hmm. and i've even written about this in my book one of the, towards the end it's called our reform delusion and i speak about two prominent actors in this field one of them has passed away who managed to get herself even funding from the american government and her main aim was to establish jihad uh, and uh, you know the caliphate in america and the other one is posing as a reformist when he in fact is an islamist mm-hmm. and i think i mean con- contextually there are over a billion muslims and of course if every one of them were a terrorist well we, we wouldn't stand a chance um you, you speak about in your book um, when you were younger being quite radical yourself, quite, quite an, you know, at least fundamentalist. a, a fundamentalist. Um, in your experience in that time when you were pursuing your studies, how common was that in interpretation among your, your fellow Muslims and maybe in Iran specifically, but, but even um, back in Australia when you returned? Well, you see, when you're a fundamentalist, you don't know you're a fundamentalist. An extremist doesn't know he's an extremist. Right. So, in fact, an extremist will think he's normal. And everyone around them is wrong. So that's why they, they go out and they proselytize and they try to convert people because they think that this is the only way to be. And in Iran, when I was part of the institution run by the Iranian regime, there was no other option. It was the supreme leader or America, the great Satan, as so they would call it. Uh, so definitely me being a, a devout Muslim, I would go with the, the regime and the more religious side, and then side against America, because, uh, you know, siding with America would be siding, siding uh, with, with the, the enemy. That's how it was presented to me. And uh, it was only, then again, I say in my book in 2014, when uh, ISIS was, uh, you know, it invaded Iraq and it took over Mosul and I was in Iraq, and that's when I began to wake up. So even though I was no longer part of the Iranian administration, uh, and the institutes governed by the Iranian regime, I was still an Islamist. But then when my uncle was murdered, uh, burnt to life by ISIS, that's when everything, uh, then, uh, you know, it, it put me in a corner. And I began to question everything, my, my purpose in life, my reason. And my return to Australia was very unexpected by many people because I didn't go on to launch a Islamic mosque or anything like that. No, no, no. I went straight to diplomatic meetings, sitting with the speakers of parliament, trying to take down extremists, shut down their, their centers and their mosques and so on.
Mm -hmm. And so with all of your conversations with politicians, um, have, have you, I guess, been able to bring forward any ways that we might distinguish between uh, just your, your average Muslim who's trying to live their life and who loves God and is peaceful versus someone who, who is an extremist? Because I think that's the, I guess, those are the options that are presented with that a lot of voters might look at and say, hmm, you know, maybe I should better be on the safe side than sorry. But, you know, a lot of other people might say, well, hang on, you're, you're turning an entire, I guess, religion away because of the acts of the few. So how can we better distinguish between those ideologies, especially if we're, you know, looking at an immigration process um, that's, I guess, aided by native governments in the Middle East who may not have as extensive monitoring and record keeping um, of their citizens like we do in the United States and Canada with CSIS and the FBI? Hmm. Well, firstly, turning away a religion because of the actions of a minority, I don't think that's uh, true because the actions of one individual, such as Asya Bibi, in a fundamentalist Muslim country like Pakistan, will endanger every single Christian in that country. Uh, one Christian pulling down an Islamic flag in Iraq endangers every Christian in Iraq. I mean, uh, the, re the reaction from Westerners uh, you know, towards Muslims because there's a minority of, of them who are extremists, I think that's uh, fair. And that's exactly how the world is, where they come from. One person does one thing and then that's it. They were eight years on death row. Why? Because a Christian lady drank from the same cup as Muslims. I mean, the situation is, is uh, somewhat better in the Western world, where there's still dialogue, there's still multicultural events, there's still welcoming Muslims in Parliament, they're still running for Congress, and we have so many Muslim MPs. So I don't think it's as black and white as many people try to present it as. As for the minority of Muslims who are doing the wrong, the majority are also responsible. Who said the majority are not responsible? Every Muslim is responsible. Take a look at the uh, Imams Council in Australia. Over 500 Imams. When a terrorist attack happens, 50 don't speak out. Not even 50. We're not saying, you know, five don't speak out, maybe five speak out, but come on, five out of 500. That's an issue. Look at the Imams in America. Look at the Imams in, uh, in Canada. How often do you find Imams going out there, really connecting with the public, the, the, the greater majority of, of the nation? Hardly. Therefore, the, the leaders who the majority follow need to be held accountable. That's also a matter that must be mentioned. Again, the, you know, the, the majority of Muslims, they're, they're misguided moderates. That's what it is. So if a terrorist attack happens, the moderate Muslim thinks that, oh, I, it's got nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. So I don't have to do anything. And who, who begins with this uh, whole notion of nothing to do with Islam and nothing? It's the far left. The far left tell the moderate Muslim that it's got nothing to do with you. Therefore, you don't need to criticize the extremists. Then the far left goes to their you know, daily job or whatever. And the extremist is no longer criticized by the moderate. Therefore, the extremist operates with no criticism whatsoever. And now they're running for Congress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... I think it's uh, it's not as black and white as many people portray it to be. And I guess when people talk about the consequences of large-scale Islamic immigration to the West, of course, terrorist attacks are kind of um, the, the big warning signs people might point to. But I think 
um, on a smaller scale, but perhaps a more prevalent and pervasive scale, I think there's also the issue of cultural compatibility, right? Um, I think some of the things we've seen um, with the increased number of Islamic uh, migrants and then you know even civilians or citizens who, who were born in the country, um, there begin to be issues of perhaps female genital mutilation, um, child brides, and things like that. Do you think, I mean, th that's a lot less serious than actually murdering people in terrorist attacks, but do you think that is that is something that is part and parcel with, with welcoming in uh, a large amount of Muslim immigrants, or do you think that's something that's been overblown? The actions that you find today, the FGM, and child brides, uh, these are very normal in Muslim countries, very normal. And whoever wishes to say this is an African problem because Ethiopia, the majority are Christian, and FGM there is, 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 uh, um, has greater statistics than other Muslim areas in Africa, look, these are exceptions. FGM isn't a Christian problem. It happening in Ethiopia is an exception. But if you want to seriously take a look at this issue, FGM, has laws and teachings as to how to do it in most Sharia law books. They teach you how to do it. So it is a religious issue and it is a cultural issue. And yes, many migrants coming in from the Middle East who do not wish to integ you know, integrate and assimilate do end up uh, you know, making their daughters go through the uh, procedure of female genital mutilation. And with regards to child brides, there's not one person that can deny this. On my office desk sits a huge pile of portfolios and files and cases that we are dealing with of migrants marrying their daughters who are 12 and 13 to their cousins who are 30 and 31 and 32. Some are in the country, some take them back home to Iraq and Iran and Pakistan, get them married there, then bring them back to the West. And it's just a problem adding on to an existing problem and most of them end in divorce and that's what we're dealing with divorce cases so it does at the end of the day destroy the country in every way possible it brings the statistics up uh, when it comes to family welfare uh, taxpayers have to deal with all these unnecessary issues and I believe that if refugees are going to come into the country they need to understand that child brides do not belong here and also FGM and these disgusting practices should stay at home. I don't mean should stay at home as in they should be practiced at home. That's not what I mean. But I mean if you're going to come with here, leave that ideology back home where it is accepted and defended and encouraged by the society. That's what I mean. And you know, you mentioned Sharia, which I think is another thing that when people uh, think of Islam is is you know right up there with perhaps their list of concerns. Um, a, a lot of people believe that it's not possible because of Sharia law and because of the fact that Islam, uh, unlike something like, for example, Christianity, where Jesus says, you know, render under Caesar, unto Caesar what is Caesar's, it's not a political message, that because uh, the religious and political are so tied together in Islam that, uh, you know, believing large Muslim populations can live in, uh, I guess, more liberal Western democracies peacefully is, is kind of naive. Is that something that you believe? How do we navigate that because of the, the strong political undertones that are present in Islam? How do we tell them to just oh, leave it in your country when the, the political is maybe part of their religion for them? That is true. There is some truth to that, but the majority of what you said is true. The other part of the, the issue that should be clarified is the fact that not only do Muslims come and believe that it is part of their mission to spread 
their ideology and to conquer. They have that tribal mentality. The issue is we have politicians that say, yes, you can have Sharia courts. What's wrong with Sharia courts? You can have them. And now how many Sharia courts do we have in, in the UK? Over 100. Sharia courts. So when a court that is acknowledged by the government, funded and acknowledged by the government, is given uh, you know, the right to issue rulings, and then those rulings are taken into account, then don't expect the female to have the same right uh, as the man. Don't, don't uh, condemn the fact that this Sharia court has given less inheritance to the daughter and more to the son. We can't say that anymore. You gave them the platform. So I think the problem is also the Western world needs to wake up to this ideology that really wants to take over. And by this ideology, I'm referring to the Islamist ideology. Many Muslims love democracy. Take a look at the UAE. Take a look at Oman. The same beheading that is allowed and loved by the Saudi Arabian authorities, uh, the beheading, uh, the people who commit blasphemy or whatever, they get beheaded. In Muslim Kuwait, it is frowned upon. So there are Muslims that want a democratic society. And there are Muslims that want a caliphate. And uh, I'm really, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but I have to say this, the majority want a caliphate. The majority of Muslims today in the West want a caliphate. They might not say it, but they believe in books that preach it. Mm -hmm. And I think with all these issues, it's very true that there are a variety of, of I guess, Islamic thought available. Um, I'm sure you've heard this a lot, but uh, some people who are, I guess, uh, more critical of your views and perhaps their authenticity might be saying, aren't you just taking the Islam out of your Islam, right? Um, do you think there's anything to the idea that perhaps these fundamentalists are actually practicing a more pure form of Islam? Is that something you would believe? Is is this peaceful, moderate version that's being spread, uh, you know, by people like you, Majid Nawaz, is that is that even Islam at that point, or is it perhaps just a, you know, Islam light diet? Right. Uh, no. The fundamentalists are actually practicing an authentic version of Islam. So ISIS is actually the exact example of how Islamic governments are, were, and should be according to Islamic law. I will never deny that, no matter what people think. Uh, so that is exactly the truth. However, that's a man-made concept. The Islamic caliphates were man-made. We don't have them in the Quran. We don't have stoning in the Quran. There's no verse of stoning in the Quran. And uh, when you ask them, what, where did you get the stoning from? They'll tell you that it, there was a verse in the Quran and the verse was with Muhammad's wife, and Muhammad's wife left the verse under her bed, and a goat came and ate the verse, and therefore it's no longer in the Quran. But it existed, but the goat ate it. Or they would tell you in Bukhari, for example, that Muhammad's companion saw two monkeys stoning a female monkey because she had sex with a male monkey, and that then is a divine sign and we're not, I'm not imagining this. Just go to sahih-bukhari.com and search monkey. I'll put it in my book. Uh, so it's monkey teachings. And when you ask me, do I believe in these? I'll tell you, no, I don't believe in monkey teachings. And I don't believe in man-made concepts, even if they are followed by the majority of Muslims. 
If you were to ask me for the evidences behind what I believe, I would give you them from the Quran, from the Hadith, even though I don't believe in the Hadith, but I can still prove my point from the Hadith. And at the same time, I can uh, refer you to amazing figures in the history of Islam, such as Hussein, who is widely praised by the Muslim and non-Muslim uh, throughout history, who was an amazing revolutionary uh, and a reformist and a revisionist, uh, who was the grandson of Muhammad, who was butchered in Karbala. And you can just go to whoishussain.org and read more about that. There's a whole website dedicated for uh, this man. People like that inspire me. People like Bin Laden don't inspire me. At the end of the day, there is no Islam light or Islam uh, plus. No, these things don't really work. Uh, the reality is this is an ideology. Not all Muslims are the same. Even fundamentalists don't get along with each other. So ISIS and Al-Qaeda are enemies. They're not on the same page. So it's unfair for people to say that, oh, they are all pure and I'm not. That's not right. These are different schools of thought and we view the world and Islam and God differently. And I've proven in my book uh, that many Muslims believe God is an obese child who rides a donkey and uh, people in Baghdad used to put hay and straw on their rooftops so that God's donkey can eat from their uh, blessings and then accept their prayers. And this has been going on. And there are Muslims who believe God is light and Muslims who believe that God cannot be described. So we can't really put all Muslims in one box and Tawhidi outside that box and then, oh, you're bringing another version. No, no, no. We're all Muslim. But we all have different uh, roads to what we believe in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess for, for people who are looking at the Muslim religion as outsiders who aren't practicing themselves, a, a lot of their biggest concerns may not necessarily be the, the veracity of which is the most pure form of Islam, but I guess what is the most prevalent? And, you know, you mentioned yourself that a lot of the more extremist mm. beliefs, a lot of the more violent beliefs, uh, you know, perhaps not in all countries, but there are definitely strongholds of this extremism of, of Wahhabism, Saudi Arabia is a huge one. Uh, in your book, you talk about your your process going through, I guess, perhaps de-radicalization might, might be a way to describe it. Um, you know, you also mentioned your father who was, you know, a peaceful man, man of God, who, who was by no means hateful or violent or anything like that. But for the, the Muslims out there who do subscribe to this more violent ideology, do you think it's likely reasonable or possible for them to go through a similar de-radicalization? Is reform among those strongholds of fundamentalism even possible? Not only is it possible, it's actually happening and it's happening on a very fast scale. Uh, people like Majid Nawaz, his organization Quilliam, they are receiving support much more unbelievably than they were, you know, several years ago. Uh, Individuals like me, who nobody would speak to from the Muslim world, now, you know, I can safely say, and, you know, off record, I don't wish to mention their names, but the amount of Muhammads and Ahmeds and Ali's and Husseins that have ordered my book uh, is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, in the thousands, and they did not order from Amazon to see what I've written, they've requested signed copies. And they live in, in Lakemba. Uh, you know, some of them live in Lakemba, uh, an area in Sydney where if I were to walk in, I would be stabbed and maybe even murdered. I was spat at even though I had security and police in the area. And uh, this is a serious issue. So when I write a book 
and I have so many Muhammads, so many Ahmeds and Husseins and, and females, you know, I get really curious and I search their names on Facebook and she's wearing a burqa. So I know what type of life she's living. She's living a double life and she wants a signed copy from Imam Tawhidi, you know, posted to a, an address very far so she can go and pick it up. This says a lot. So yes, it is possible and it is happening. The only issue is the majority of them don't speak English. Mm-hmm. This is happening. I will say something, Lauren. Did you know that ISIS creates more ex-Muslims and more liberal secular Muslims than any Christian or atheist preacher? I mean, I, I would love for that to be the case. Seriously, ISIS has caused so many Muslims to leave a, the hard hardline uh, Islamist teachings and the extremist uh, ideology because they shock you. And uh, I was one of them. This happened in 2014 where we said, no, come on, we really need to get, uh, get to work and start combating them. So yes, it is happening and it's happening very fast. And I see it because this is my life. I live within the Muslim community. Once this interview is over, I go back to the Muslim community. So I see exactly the growth and the seriousness of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I guess on that note, I'd like to switch things a little bit over to politics. Uh, when I announced that I was going to be interviewing you, I had some people say, oh, he, he's, a, he's a right-wing shill. It, I mean, I guess this is not necessarily directly related to the issue of religion, but I mean, do you consider yourself a, a right-winger? Uh, a lot of people might point to the fact that, you know, you've spoken to I mean, maybe people like me, uh, you know, uh, Tommy Robinson, you've expressed support for him. Do you think of yourself as this right-wing political actor I think uh, you know many people have misunderstood me and you know I'd like to take this opportunity to clarify a very important point when I was in Australia and I began speaking against the extremists in my community I received a phone call from a journalist and the journalist asked me if I thought that what I was doing somewhat played into the right-wing Uh, you know, politics. And I said to them, what is right-wing? Really, I did not know what right-wing, left-wing meant until a year and a half ago. I really didn't know. So if someone was to ask me, what are you, right-wing, left-wing? I don't know. I really did not know. And when I say up until a year and a half ago, I have known and I have had a line of, of communication with Tommy Robinson since 2011. And I don't know what right-wing, left-wing is. I only know national security, extremist Muslims, we need to stop extremist Muslims, we need to strengthen our national security. I don't know what's happening in in this whole political... uh, Now I know, now I know, but I don't really follow up because I don't really care. To me, you can have uh, a view that uh, I don't like and I can have a view that you don't like. I'm a man of peace. I sit with everyone. I meet with everyone, uh, Tommy Robinson, Faith Goldie, uh, Pauline Hansen, Corey Bernardi. I sit with everyone, the conservative and the left. Everyone has access to me. Uh, I think this is a real achievement in life where you disagree with me, but you can still sit with me. We can still have, uh, uh, you know, drink orange juice because I don't drink, but we can still have orange juice and we can have a coffee or uh, shisha or whatever it may be. And we can uh, walk away. Uh, respecting each other 
And, and if you don't agree with me, it doesn't mean I have to fight you. Uh, this, it doesn't work like that. I'm a man of peace. I sit with everyone. I welcome everyone. Uh, my duty and my role in life is to establish peace. It's an achievement for me to sit with someone who disagrees with me. Let's take, let me flip this scenario so that the viewers get an understanding of what I mean. Who said Tommy Robinson agrees with me? I sat with Faith Goldie. Who said Faith agrees with me? I opened for Lauren Southern. Lauren Southern disagrees with me 99%, 99.9%. Tommy Robinson, by a word, I have to say about my brand of Islam, he would support me going against the fundamentalists, but he he doesn't believe in in what I uh, say, that yes, Imam Tawheed is is, is the, the, the new face of Islam. No, he probably thinks it's the whole religion is hopeless, but it's an achievement for people like him and for people like me to have dialogue. This is what I stress upon. Let's stop fighting and clashing with each other and let's sit down. I sit with a left-wing person, does not mean that I'm a left-wing. And if I sit with a right-wing person, does not make me a right-wing. My focus is about establishing peace, having dialogue, uh, caring about other people's opinions, and understanding what the West is saying. I'm not from Canada. I'm from Australia. When I come to Canada, so many people tell me, don't sit with this man, sit with this man. I don't know. I have to sit with everyone. I like to hear both sides of the story. This is who I am. The West to me is a confused place. I see people who are so confused and their priorities are upside down. So I like to understand everyone and everything. So I'm going to sit with everyone to understand as much as I can. And I don't subscribe to right wing, left wing. Yes, in my politics, I'm not going to lie, I am a conservative. I believe in stronger borders. I believe in uh, serious uh, national security. That's because my family were butchered and murdered. So it's a reaction towards what I've been through, my experience in life. I'm a conservative because that's what it's called these days. Uh, And I don't want open borders and I don't believe in this open society nonsense. Uh, This is who I am. And uh, I'm not uh, right wing or extreme in any way. I just want dialogue with as many people as possible because I believe my role in life is much greater than falling into this left wing, right wing. But I do criticize the far left and the far right. Mm -hmm. I do that equally. And unfortunately, that idea that you can want dialogue with someone, you can want to sit with them, but not share every view they have, that's not something that is really embraced uh, a lot nowadays. And, you know, you mentioned Faith Goldie specifically, and uh, if people watching aren't, aren't familiar, she's actually, um, she, she's a commentator, started off that way, but she recently ran for mayor of Toronto. Um, now, I, I looked into her platform, and she was one of the only candidates that was actually talking about things like the issue of, of refugees and migrants, of course, you know, we're talking at the May, mayoral level, so there's not really a whole lot that they might be able to do either way. Um, but she ran a quite mainstream platform. Uh, it would be very hard to look at the things that she was proposing and say, this is something a, a white supremacist would, would want or a white nationalist would want. Um, and, and, you know, and you, you tweeted out some support for her campaign as well. Um, regardless of how the campaign may have looked on paper, nonetheless, because of uh, a lot of the ways people that are have interpreted Faith's own history, um, the fact that she's, uh, you know, she's been on programs with alt-right people who are themselves, uh, you know, white nationalists and things like that. Uh, a lot of people see her as a white nationalist, white supremacist figure. I don't know her. Uh, I've looked into her campaign, couldn't say anything bad about that. But a lot of people on the left looked at your support for her 
and are, are therefore very keen to lump you in uh, with that, strangely enough, looking at you. You wouldn't think it, but white nationalist crowd. What, what would you say to that? Because that's something that... Jesus Christ, I look like Osama <laughs> Bin Laden. How am I... Anyway, it's a very diverse movement, the white nationalists. Yeah, no, no, it's it's uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Look at my face. Do I have a place in the white nationalist movement? Will they accept me in any way? I mean, come on. Um, let's let's put it this way. And I don't like sharing certain issues, but I'm gonna have to now. On my phone, we have WhatsApp groups with politicians. So in Australia, there's a WhatsApp group where certain politicians chat, and I'm part of this group or certain assistants, advisors for politicians. Uh, there are groups on Telegram where politicians chat to each other. I'm part of these groups. And in Canada, I'm also part of certain groups on WhatsApp where people discuss certain issues. And uh, like I said, this is me speaking about Faith Goldie from the first time I ever heard about her was in this group where mainstream politicians were sharing her content, were retweeting her. So I began retweeting. And I spoke to her. I said, uh, Faith, in fact, uh, there's uh, an issue that I'd like to speak to you about, and that is uh, the issue of Islamic extremists, if you can make an audit. And she accepted. So I began sharing the fact that there will be an audit in Toronto. I don't, live, I don't vote in Toronto, and I don't live in Toronto. Uh, but basically, she was on board to having an investigation into extremist mosques, and I was tweeting that. And I think that was the right thing to do, to give that more voice. Uh, it's not really my concern what people think of me. I don't care what people think of me. If I wanted people to like me, there are many other career paths I could have taken. But I don't really care. I found an, an issue that concerns national security because this is my mind. It's always national security. If, if I find something supports national security, I'm tweeting it and I'm retweeting. And that's what happened. So for the people to then see me retweet and say he's a white nationalist, just look at my face. Things don't add up when, when you look at me and my activities with everyone. I embrace everyone. Um, but that, that then is, it's, it's the level they want to go to. I don't wish to go down to their level. Mm -hmm. And I think as someone who is part of the Muslim community and obviously uh, working very hard from within to reform things, uh, you know, it, it'd be hard for someone to call you Islamophobic. But what I've heard is that, you know, even if may, you yourself may not be because of, you know, the things that you're tweeting at, out about the extremists, if someone sees some of your content and perhaps doesn't look into you more and just, you know, here's a cursory uh, piece uh, about you talking about the number of adherents there are to the belief that Muhammad was divine but also a violent pedophile. I, I, I've heard people say that regardless of your own beliefs, you might be, I guess, fueling this Islamophobia with, with your criticisms. Do you, do, you, do you think that's fair? I don't know. I'm also very confused, Lauren, because they tell me that the extremists don't represent Islam. So when I criticize the ideology of the extremists, they tell me I'm insulting Islam. Do you see where we're going? So you make up your mind and then come back to me so that I can know how to deal with you because all I'm doing is I'm criticizing ISIS and the ideology of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic teachings that gave us ISIS and Al-Qaeda. That's all I ever do online. I praise Muslims who do the right thing. If you go through my timeline on Twitter and Facebook, you'll find that many times I've never missed an opportunity to praise Muslims when they do something good, when they donate towards a, a shooting that takes place, when they donate towards a cemetery that's destroyed. I always praise them for doing something good. Oh, they're my people. 
I praise them when they do something good. But when they do something bad, I have to criticize. Yes, the majority of things I post are not positive. Well, if someone says, why don't I post more? Then they should email me the good because I have an employee that sends me the good and the bad every single day. If there's not enough good, then you're not doing enough good and I can't share it because it doesn't exist. I'm not going to make things up. If there's something good, I will share it. If there's no good news, I'm not going to make it up. So yes, the majority is negative news and that's just the Muslim community. I can't change it. Mm -hmm. And I think people who, who hear your message and who aren't hateful but are at the same time concerned um, with things like immigration, with things like growing radicalization, both overseas and domestically, uh, a lot of them want to know what they can do in, in, in this situation. What can they do to, in their own lives, I guess, be welcoming and accepting of people from a different religion but who still share the same values, who still love the same God, uh, while still wanting to, you know, like you said, you're, you're in support of strong borders, still keep up the existence of borders. Uh, a lot of people feel very trapped right now between uh, being called a racist and an Islamophobe and ignoring actual problems that are really happening. So for those people, what, what advice would you, would you give them? Well, there are many things one can do, from writing a blog to setting up a website to making YouTube videos to donating to Quilliam if they're in the UK, uh, to reading my book and having a better understanding of what the difficulties within Islam are. Uh, there are many things one can do. Most importantly, if they are active online, they should follow our accounts and also uh, support us when we need the support because we are victims. Seriously, I've never used the word victim for myself. But honestly speaking, in, in the last few months, we have been victims of attacks on social media like no tomorrow. I mean, I have an actual company that manages my social media accounts. Uh, hence the growth and hence everything. But security-wise, everything is good. But we, I have friends that have had their accounts hacked completely. And, you know, I think what, what we need is support from people who understand us from outside the Muslim community. Because we, as, as moderate reformist Muslims, won't be able to achieve our goals without the support of the greater community that we live within. All right. Now, the last question I want to ask you is actually probably the most prevalent question that I got. Your beard, very well groomed. How do you do it? Okay. Well, on the way here, I said that she's going to ask me about yeah. my beard because every single interview, this is the 18th one, by the way. Sorry, 19th. The one before in New York was uh, the 18th. How do I do it? I make my own oil. Really? I do. I make my own oil. And it's uh, it's not chemicals. Because many people, they hear this, they rush to the markets and they buy. It's none of that. Everything you have in the stores, I've tried and they don't work. <laughs> don't get them. Uh, what I use is is my own. I will not say what it is. But I will tell you. Because if I say it and someone gets... Uh, an infection or something, then I'm, I'm responsible. But I will tell you what it includes. It includes uh, tea tree oil, uh, almond oil, um, uh, sometimes garlic oil. Uh, it, it's, it goes in that line of uh, aloe vera and things like no chemical, all natural stuff. And also, as a practicing Muslim, I pray. So three times a day, I have to wash my face. So my beard gets a lot of water including the morning showers 
and when I'm in the Middle East, the weather there is terrible, so, uh, you know, my beard gets a lot of water. And uh, that's very important, that your beard gets a lot, of, a lot of clean water, and I make my own oil. Now, many people have said, will you release your own product? <laughs> now, Interesting merch line idea. Yes, uh, I'm thinking, if I do so, I would like all proceeds to go towards a charitable cause, uh, to support counterterrorism, because so many beards are supporting <laughs> terrorism, I want my beard to support counterterrorism. So I'm thinking of it. Maybe I will release my own product. Maybe. All right, beard enthusiast. I, I asked your question. If you want his oil, you gotta gotta lobby him, gotta write him. But for people who want to keep up what you're doing, to support your work, to get your book, where can they go to find that? Um, it's all on my Twitter accounts. My book is available on Amazon, The Tragedy of Islam. Or you can get your signed copies, uh, the tragedy, sorry, tragedyofislam.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash the Imam of Peace. Twitter is at Imam of Peace. And uh, please share with me your criticism, your feedback, your ideas, your tips, anything that you believe uh, could help me and the people I work with. Now, before I uh, let you wrap up, I will be uh, very honest, I have to say, there are many things I don't say in this interview, in the previous ones, and in the future ones that affect my family, affect me directly. I do fear there might be a fatwa against me because of my book, and I don't wish to put myself in a situation where the police say, well, you've said these things, and you can't expect us to put, put all resources at your disposal because you want to go around saying that cert certain issues. So I have to be very careful. There's many things, uh, there are many things I haven't said, which I will say in the future. I'm just waiting for the right time. But for now, whoever reads my book will know how serious I am about uh, the truth. And I've said things nobody other than me would ever say uh, as a Muslim with the evidences I have provided. Mm -hmm. And I think whether people disagree with you, agree with you, I think they definitely can accuse you of not being courageous enough. Uh, so I, I'm sure everyone watching this hopes for your safety and the safety of your family. And again, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Lauren. appreciate it. All right. And everyone who's watching this, thank you so much. And if you'd like to, you can check out Imam Tawhidi on Twitter. That's all for now. And thank you so much for tuning in.